Welcome, I'm Paul Hunt. This is a special podcast produced for download by Energy News. In this episode, we talk to an Australian company called Elixir Energy, listed on the ASX as EXR, and it operates in Mongolia. In fact, Elixir is one of the first gas explorers in the country and is well on its way to becoming the first gas operation in Mongolia. It made the, its initial discovery a couple of years ago. It's a huge opportunity for the company, which holds about 7 million acres of prime real estate close to the border of China, one of the biggest consumers of natural gas in the world. I'm joined by Elixir Energy Managing Director Neil Young to discuss the project to date and the future it holds. Neil Young, welcome to the program. Thanks. You recently kicked off your 2021 drilling program. What was the journey to getting to this point? So this is the third year of exploration for gas in the form of cobalt methane or coal seam gas uh, in Mongolia following the execution of the country's first CBM production sharing contract or PSC at the end of 2018. Uh, in, in, in 2020, we had um, in around February the first discovery of gas in the country, and we followed up, notwithstanding COVID, a number of successful wells thereafter. So 2020 in difficult times was a very successful year for us. It put us on a platform to expand a program in 2021, which we kicked off um, with our first well, which called uh, Yangir 2 in March. The results of that were positive, and so recently we've initiated a capital raise to expand the program even more. Neil, your first ever resource booking was announced recently. Can you walk me through how this was established and the size of the resource? Sure. So in the petroleum sector, there there are essentially three categories of resource bookings. There's a prospective, that is a uh, an estimated but not established uh, resource booking. And we had a first one of those actually in 2018, and then we revised that at the end of 2020. The next category actually discovered resources are called contingent resources. And we announced our first booking uh, of those uh, within the last month. Um, the next category is reserves, which are commercial um, uh, resources, and that's down the track as and when we prosecute successful production testing programs. But going back to the contingent resources, we've booked these in an area of less than 2% of the production sharing contract, and those are linked to a, a gas-fired power project, um, which we have a number of legs to, and which uh, w- w- the resource size in the 2C, which is the mid-case, is sufficient to fuel the, the initially sc- sized project. Are we looking at, you know, billions of cubic feet or, 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 or what size exactly? Yeah, we, we are. So the, the categories here are sort of proven, proven and probable and proven and probable and possible. And it's really the middle category, what, what the, the 2C, as we'd call it for contingent resources. And here we have about 30 or 40 billion cubic feet. Which is which is enough to power a you know a small but hopefully growing gas-fired power project for its effective life. My guest today is Neil Young, managing director of Elixir Energy. Neil, you've talked about this power plant um, as I guess 
perhaps the first stage of development for uh, your large swathe of acreage in Mongolia. But what does a commercial development outside of that look like? So the market optionality we have here is is quite substantial. We're in the Gobi Desert, and that naturally brings up visions of dunes and camels and not much else. But in reality, it is it is developed. There are large mines in the region, including one operated by Rio Tinto, the Oyotogoi copper mine, which when finished will be the largest um, demand node for electricity in the country of Mongolia. There are power lines which connect this region to the capital city and to China itself. There are, there are roads and there are other mines as well. So the options here for market clearly include um, electricity of, uh, of many different sizes. We're going to start small but could grow big and there could be a number of different sites. Um, the ultimate um, vision is to have enough gas to uh, warrant building a pipeline to China. Uh, and that's the original vision which took us to the country in the first place. But there are many intermediate steps on the way to that, um, which can not only um, prove up the resource and, and the experience in Australia indicates that that is valuable, but also provide cash flow and uh, provide benefits to local communities of various types. In terms of power generation and the electricity market in um, Mongolia, it's one of the fastest developing uh, nations in the world, uh, but it is a developing nation. Um, What challenges is it currently facing uh, in electricity generation and power? So the core of its uh, legacy generation fleet are 30 or 40-year-old coal-fired generators, Mm. which are cheap but polluting, and they will be coming to the ends of their effective lives. The, the balance of the system is really met currently by renewables and power imports from Russia um, to the general grid and also from China to the Rio Tinto mine that I mentioned. So the challenges are to replace coal with uh, uh, new sources of generation which are cleaner and which can be financed. Uh, also to, to balance the, the, the grid needs from other countries and to supply the Rio Tinto mine with local power, not imported Chinese power. Many other ASX-listed oil and gas explorers, um, especially juniors, look to uh, domestic opportunities such as uh, Queensland or even the Northern Territory, Western Australia. What was it that caught your eye in Mongolia? So I used to work at Santos as a business development manager and about 15 years ago did a lot of deals putting together the uh, calcium gas packages which now um, support one of the LNG export projects from Gladstone. And so it it struck me more than a decade ago that uh, we were exporting calcium gas from remote Queensland to Asia, primarily Mm. China. And at the same time, Mongolia was emerging as a coal exporter to China and vision came out, which was very striking to me, of trucks taking that coal. That's how close it is. And so two very simple uh, light bulbs came together. One, there's coal, which hopefully means there's calcium gas, uh, and and we've now proved that there is. Uh, Secondly, proximity to market is absolutely immediate 
And in gas, compared to uh, any other commodity, location is important because it's very expensive to move gas. The, the, to illustrate, of the delivered price of landed Australian gas in China, half the cost is just getting it there. Mm. Uh, whereas if you can find similar gas to Mongolia, you'd have a very significant cost advantage because you avoid the cost of shipping, liquefaction, regasification, etc. Every project has its challenges. Uh, has Mongolia been challenging? I mean, the past year in itself has been challenging for uh, all companies, no matter where they're based, but particularly in Mongolia. Um, have you have what's the struggle been like so far, or has there been much of a struggle? So the the COVID specific struggles obviously relate to the ability to to bring in external experts for management such as me to to deal with stakeholders in the country. Um, shipping equipment, although not impossible, is harder. But uh, the reason that we still managed to prosecute a successful campaign is largely down to probably the 10 years of prior experience built up in the country, um, establishing strong relationships, having a good management team in place, uh, working with subcontractors who who are local but who we've worked with before. And those foundational elements uh, have meant that we can still manage, notwithstanding international travel, effectively being off uh, the the agenda for the you know the rest of this year or maybe longer. Who knows? Um, the other, I suppose, enduring challenges are, firstly, geology, and that that's always going to be the case for for any resource explorer. That uh, you know, geology doesn't doesn't uh, deliver you absolute outcomes, uh, and all we can do is mitigate risks and trust that the reward will more than compensate for those risks. As you said, Mongolia is a developing nation, um, but uh, we think our local relationships are very strong and the typical issues that arise in such countries we've found to be to be very manageable. And indeed, for instance, on permitting sides, you know, we, we often found that we've moved quickly uh, and more quickly than you can in many parts of Australia, which which is uh, you know unfortunate for us, but unfortunate, for instance, if you're looking to do gas in New South Wales, for example. Well, I guess the the policy settings in Mongolia is uh, is an is a uh, a stroke of luck, if you if you like, um, but it's also a rather more stable country to be working in compared to um, other developing nations. What's the relationship been with um, the government? So I, I I go back to you, to your point as to to why is Mongolia maybe more stable than some other places and. It's enormously fortuitous in that it's effectively been a country for nearly a thousand years, whereas most of the world, that's not the case. I think there's probably a dozen countries in the world that you could say that that's true. So it is geographically, ethnically homogenous. There are no uh, no disputes between regions because of borders being set in, in colonial times, and there is, there's no religious strife. So it benefits enormously from that foundation. It's got some some neighbours uh, who are who are powerful. Obviously, Russia to the north, China to the south. Um, they tend to balance each other out um, o- o- over time, and they also have what are called third neighbours, which is an aggregate term for countries such as Australia, the U.S., Japan, South Korea, India, who all want to provide support to. Uh, a democracy, which is unusual in the region, and also one to provide geopolitical counterweight 
to to the to the first couple of countries that I mentioned. So. A good example of that is is Mongolia is currently experiencing COVID, uh, as most countries are, but it's getting a lot of vaccinations into people's arms. It's getting vaccine supplies from China, from Russia, from COVAX, and ultimately the government's got a got a plan to vaccinate the whole adult population within the next few months. And with with only a, a circa 3 million uh, population, that's feasible. And that's a, a very blessed position compared to the much more populous countries of, of which India is the unfortunate uh, exemplar just now who are, who are struggling far harder with, the, with this terrible pandemic. Neil, um, you're the Managing Director of Elixir. We're talking about... Um, your development uh, to be or your exploration project in Mongolia. Um, I guess another interesting um, point to make is that with every oil and gas um, project, there is generally revenue that the government sees. So they must love you in terms of um, the the impact that your project could make uh, going down the road. Uh, that, that, that's of course true. So we operate under production sharing contract, which uh, as and when we get to the production stage, will provide the government with revenues over a very sustained period. Um, but however, even prior to that, we invest in the country uh, in this exploration and appraisal phase. Uh, we deliberately uh, use as many local contractors and, and local employees as we can, and that that puts money um, into the economy. It also is good value for our, our shareholders. Uh, we don't have to import expensive uh, personnel, and we think it's a, it's a win-win situation all, all around there. Uh, Mongolia doesn't have a lot of history of petroleum, but it's got a big history of coal and minerals. And in coal seam gas, what we do, much of the equipment and such like is fairly similar. So we don't need to to build up an exploration capability from scratch as you might have to do in some other locations with with different uh, resource targets. We've talked about your resource um, booking, your contingent resource um, booking, um, and I'm interested in knowing a little bit more about this and uh, what the next stage is to take it to being a proved reserve. Or um, are you able to walk me through what the what the future holds in terms of drilling and how you're shoring up those resources into reserves? So, as I mentioned earlier, the next category. Um, uh, in the in the resource categorization space of reserves uh, requires a proof of commerciality and mm. that is multidimensional it needs um, flow rates uh, to be measured and sustained and deemed to be given the cost of wells economic it also requires somewhere for the gas to go hence the the gas fire generation project um, that we're working on so ultimately reserves are booked when everything comes together when you've got a real downstream project w- supported by real contracts and where you've got proven characteristics in the reservoir which are deemed to be economic so we're pursuing uh, both of those issues in parallel uh, later this year, we aim for the, the first leg of sustained production testing, which will occur over, over this year and next. And we, we plan for this in, in the initial what we call Nomgon area. But ultimately, as our exploration and appraisal program advances, we'll, we'll look at doing these production tests elsewhere. 
Um, the Generation Project, we're advancing um, an MOU with the Ministry of Energy, who is the necessary counterparty on issues such as offtake and permitting. We're also working with uh, an Australian headquartered expert company called Clark Energy, who's got substantial expertise in Australia's own coal seam gas history in constructing small but modular gas engine-based uh, power stations operate on coal seam gas. They've worked in China before, so, so that they know the region, and we're very pleased to be working with them as well, obviously, as the government. And in due course, we see other partners coming in, such as international financial institutions who would see merit in, in gas entering the Mongolian electricity system, because obviously it would be a cleaner source of power than the existing coal-fired generators, which currently dominate. And those coal-fired generators are on their way out anyway, it appears. Uh, I think it's inevitable given not only their effective lives, and we see this in Australia, but also the reluctance of, of banks and, and other entities to, to finance such uh, developments in the future mean that uh, even though these things are still technically and commercially feasible, the money's not increasingly drying up uh, to, to finance their construction. Uh, whereas cleaner sources of fuel such as gas and obviously renewables um, can and do attract finance uh, and uh, 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 that, that'll endure for a considerable period on the gas front. You mentioned um, a moment ago uh, the gas market in uh, Mongolia and I'm interested in looking at that a little bit uh, more deeper and, and, and just working out exactly how much of their electricity generation comes from gas currently. Do you know? So currently there's no gas in the country, there's no gas production and there's no imports of gas from other, other countries. Um, but that, so the, the question's fairly easy to argue, answer is zero. <laughs> but it brings me to an interesting uh, other point and that is um, uh, the, the massive Russian gas company called Gazprom mm. have a plan to build a pipeline from Western Siberia through Mongolia to the Chinese gas network. And uh, that pipeline was the subject of an MOU between uh, Putin and Mongolia's uh, uh, prime minister entered into last year. And just in recent weeks, Gazprom announced the completion of initial feasibility assessment into the pipeline route across Mongolia. Now, that's a mega project. These things don't happen instantly. But from our point of view, it's interesting in that presuming it goes ahead, it's not far from where we are. And one would normally expect in a transit nation to have the right to access and, and input one's own gas. Mm. So, say, early days, but that's a massive infrastructure project which could provide a separate outlet to us from our own plans to, to provide gas locally or to build our own, own pipeline. Um, so, you know, I think that that's, that's highly encouraging that, that a project of that scale could come th through uh, the country near us and demonstrates the, the, the incredible uh, desire for China to increase the penetration of gas in its economy, which in comparative terms is currently very, very low. Wildcatting in itself is a, is a bit of an art form, and that's essentially what you went out and did. As you mentioned, there's been no gas production in Mongolia to date. How much has this, how much has this exploration project cost so far? And how much is, could, could you put into perspective, say, the cost of wells? Because sometimes a well can cost $100 million, but obviously coal seam gas is very different, isn't it? 
Yeah, absolutely. So, so our total expenditures to date, including corporate costs, and uh, you know, would be less than twenty million dollars. Um, and going to the well cost issue, which is the most important data point going forward, um, well costs here are low for really two reasons. Firstly, coal seam gas is very shallow and easy drilling. So in Australia, a well might cost you know half a million to a million dollars. In Mongolia, it costs considerably less than that, largely because of labor cost differential. Australia, one of the highest in the world, uh, Mongolia being you know, a low-income uh, country. Um, so instead of wells costing tens of millions of dollars, Depending on their type, they cost tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands. So, you know, orders of magnitude uh, different. And so that that is why we've been able to retain 100% ownership of our license. Typically in our game, small companies have to farm out. They have to bring someone in because it's fiscally necessary. When they do so, however, they lose control of their own destiny. They have to mm. do what their partner wants. And that partner might want to go slow or quick or, or, or whatever. We've got 100%. If we wanted to bring someone in, it would be because we wanted to bring them in, not because we needed their money. And that's a great position to be in. And with our uh, recent capital raises, you know, we, we can retain that 100% position for the indefinite future. And, and that, that's a, a fantastic strategic position for us. You mentioned the capital raises. Um, you've just had a placement which was extremely successful uh, and you, you're embarking now on a share purchase uh, plan. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the financials of the company and, um, and what costs are involved in the short term? So at, at the end of 2020, we had uh, announced we had about $9 million um, in the bank. That followed the successful exercise of listed options, which expired at the end of last year. Um, we decided to initiate a, a further capital raise on top of that um, just recently because of the encouraging results that we've got and our view that we could deploy a lot more capital to accelerate our program of exploration and appraisal. Um, we decided to structure this probably somewhat unusually in the junior space with about a third of the capital target to be raised from sophisticated and institutional investors under replacement. But we also are giving just now our small shareholders the opportunity to participate on the same basis, really in an unlimited fashion. And we've announced a target of 20 million. It's very hard to know how much you'll get an SPP, so it could be more, it could be less. Um, and we don't have to meet a target because our expenditure, as I discussed, is quite low. But what we think this does is it rewards the people who supported us through a capital raise we did this time last year where the SPP was very well supported, through the listed option exercise, which was largely through existing shareholders, through the on-market support from small shareholders, which has been very, very strong. Um, for a junior company, we have a lot of shareholders. We have about 7,000. That number has probably trebled uh, within the last year. So we have, in numeric terms, a lot of people who, who like the story, who like the, the uh, success demonstrated to date. And the board really wanted to give them a chance to put in, even if not much money each, something, and not just have the big end of town get the whole lot. 
Uh, that that uh, SPP will close at the end of next week and we'll announce the results thereafter. And uh, we think it'll be really interesting to see what it delivers. And uh, um, I, I think these COVID times have been interesting overall, not just for us, but for capital markets where the small shareholders demonstrated his clout. And mm. uh, even some of the big companies on the ASX have um, suffered when they've uh, looked after the, the fund managers more than their existing retail shareholders and then then suffered some criticism, probably warranted accordingly. And, and we've taken quite a different route um, because we could. And let, we're really interested to see how that plays out. My guest today is Neil Young, the Managing Director of Elixir Energy, listed on the ASX as EXR. Neil, can you talk me through um, the 30 wells or so, which is the current drilling program that you're undertaking? Are there specific targets that you're uh, looking at or prospects? Absolutely. So we start off with a canvas which is very, very large. Um, the uh, PSC area is uh, 30,000 square kilometres or 7 million acres for, the, for those who prefer the imperial. So uh, we you know, use a simple picture to illustrate this. this. This is the size of a small European country like Belgium. So the canvas is very, very large. Um, the area is underexplored, but we did start with data from coal mining, which is relevant to our target of coal seam gas and various data points available from other minerals explorers, including BHP in the 90s, who, who did work there. So that, that work indicated to us that in this area, there are a number of what we call sub-basins, which we believe host Permian-era coals. And over the last couple of years, we've been progressively drilling some of those, shooting seismic over some of those, but certainly not all of them, given the sheer size of where we're at. What our new fiscal position will allow us to do is target more of those sub-basins with seismic, to drill more of them with cheap exploration wells, to follow up with more expensive appraisal wells, and then the production testing process that I outlined earlier. The seismic program can expand from a few skinny uh, 2D lines to much more intense 3D programs, and all of those can be well financed by our current and, and soon-to-come-in fiscal resources. So what we aim to do is establish multiple areas hosting coal seam gas to progressively book contingent resources across those, to look at new commercial projects, be it new gas fire generation projects or others, and ultimately demonstrate that uh, we have what I rather boringly call a rinse and repeat model, whereby we go to new areas, we deploy funds, we, we deploy expertise, uh, we use local people and local crews, and we build up a resource basis brick by brick. And, and what we'd like to see in a few years' times, uh, if we're successful, are those bricks up add up to a large resource size, uh, large enough to feed large projects, even an export project. And if we believe if that can be demonstrated, then the sort of parties who have the deep balance sheets and expertise required for mega development projects can come in and, and work uh, with us or in whatever shape or form that might be uh, um, to move the those sorts of projects forward. So just now it's about exploration and appraisal and acceleration. The long-term goal is material development and uh, 
this, that's an exciting one. We're, we're just to the north of the world's largest energy importing market. You talk about uh, perhaps this could this venture could end up being an export um, project, an export mega development, in fact. What size of a resource would it take to become that? That's a question which really goes to, I suppose, a multidimensional answer. And one is, what is required to underwrite a pipeline? And a pipeline here doesn't have to go a long way. We're about 400 kilometers from the main pipeline network in China, which runs all the way from Turkmenistan on, on, the, on the Caspian Sea through to East Coast China. And that's a very, very large pipeline system. So a 400 kilometer pipeline could be developed in, in Australian terms with a resource size of four or 500 BCF, um, which is not enormous in gas terms. Um, if you'd one discovered... Uh, bigger quantities of gas, then the pipeline size can be greatly increased. Of course, there is the local demand for electricity that could well be more economic than export anyway. I think the ultimate answer, therefore, will be assessed in political terms as well as engineering terms in that in in gas developments ranging from the history of gas in Western Australia, whereby exports underpinned local pipeline developments as well, and everybody in the community developed, companies, governments, people, uh, and export markets. And a large enough resource in Mongolia would deliver a a similar outcome where all stakeholders were satisfied, and uh, that's obviously what what we'd like to see rather than than pick an answer just now as as a single focus. Um, I guess one of the other interesting markets that you have in Mongolia, it's not just power generation, it's um, LNG for uh, trucking fuel and for for future opportunities. I mean, you mentioned that Rio Tinto were um, already in the country uh, with their copper mine. Mm -hmm. Um, Is is that something that you've been looking at and have you signed any off-take agreements with, with miners? We we have we have looked at it. We haven't got to the point of maturity of signing offtake. And uh, what we saw a year or so ago was the current coal mines in the region, in particular, truck a lot of coal to China. They have literally thousands of trucks a day going over the border, consuming expensive diesel. Now, in China itself. There are many, many millions of vehicles which run on natural gas, either liquefied or compressed, that's LNG or CNG. And so it would certainly be feasible over time for that truck fleet to run on cheaper and cleaner gas rather than diesel. And if it did, that would obviously deliver economic and environmental benefits to the users. To us, it would deliver a different market than than gas-fired generation. So we we, uh, uh, wrote an MOU with a Mongolian uh, fuel retail company uh, a year or so ago about that. But that's really awaiting maturity of the resources before it will be advanced. And the gas-fired generation is currently the leading offtake project that we've got, but certainly not the only one, as, as you said. I'd like to jump back onto exploration. Um, and it's a bit of a novel approach, in, 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 in my opinion, because um, I'm used to seeing as a oil and gas journalist, uh, a company go out, shoot seismic, then decide where to drill the wells. But your your acreage is so big, like you said, it's the size of a small country. Um, are you shooting seismic as you drill? 
we're, we're, we are shooting seismic, for instance, right now, and uh, that's leading uh, us to identify new drilling targets um, as we go. And then, but equally, the, the, the chicken and egg can work the other way around. If we drill in a location that's successful, then we'll go back and shoot more seismic over it. So the process is quite iterative rather than being sequential. And uh, as our uh, funding capacity has expanded too, then we can consider, for instance, doing 3D as well as 2D. And we can extend the sheer quantity of 2D as well. So it's uh, we, we need to react quickly as we go along. And because we are unsure that's feasible, we're also in a location where you know, as it's a you know, quasi-desert. There aren't really fences and stuff. Doing doing seismic is really as easy technically as it would be anywhere in the world. Uh, and it's pretty cost-effective, and we we use coal seam gas specific seismic techniques. We don't need to image beyond a thousand meters, and so it's 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 pretty cheap and and good value for us. Um, We've talked about your drilling program so far, but when do you expect? Um, to, to wrap that drilling program of 30 or so wells um, up. Is that by the end of the year? So I, I suppose we would see drilling would almost never be wrapped up. Mm. Um, uh, the, there is a, a, a harsh winter in Mongolia, although the southern part where we are is not nearly as cold as the northern part. And we indeed, we've operated in, in January and February before when it's, when it's well below freezing. Um, but that is a tougher period and we need to be conscious of, of safety issues and such like. We also have annual permitting processes which are typically done in, in the hearts of winter, which, which can consume some time. But otherwise, drilling will be ongoing throughout the next few years of exploration and appraisal. The 30 wells will, won't all be in this year. That's really over, the, over this year and next. Um, but as and when we see opportunities to accelerate programs, um, we, we could be doing more. Uh, we could be bringing in new rigs, new capabilities, and accelerating that. And it all comes back to that point. We've got 100% ownership. We can be very, very nimble. We have to deal appropriately with permitting and local communities, and, but we invest um, you know, substantial efforts, not only in working with governments, but working with the people who, who live where we are. I mean, we, we've all seen in Australia and elsewhere that you can't ignore the demands of local peoples, their concerns about what you might be doing. And so we want to build good relationships with them up front. And even in small ways, we've, we've done so. We've helped with PPE equipment uh, and such like during this time of COVID in the region where we've been drilling. It's a busy time for Elixir Energy as it is. I mean, you've got a drilling program underway. Um, you've already booked your uh, prospective resources and you're heading towards uh, firming up those reserves as well. But that's not the only thing that uh, you're looking at, is it, Neil? Because um, you've set up a subsidiary uh, looking at clean energy opportunities, including renewables and green hydrogen. Exactly. Now, the, the, we believe the skill sets that we've got, that is working with local communities, working with governments at multiple levels, having in-country resources, ability to talk to ministries, um, is a fantastic platform to look at um, other aspects of, of what people are calling the energy transition. Gas is, is a key um, platform in that energy transition over, over the next few decades, but increasingly the world will look to renewables and then ultimately hydrogen in, in particular energy applications as well. So where we are, we went to Mongolia because it's near to market. Um, that 
near-to-market attribute is even more important for things like hydrogen, which is much more expensive to move than methane. So it's small scale, but we are currently importing equipment from Australia called a SODAR, which measures wind uh, resources and can measure solar as well. And we will uh, deploy that where we already operate and have the capability to work. And ultimately, that can demonstrate bankable renewable projects. Those renewable projects can make money from generating electricity and exporting it to the Mongolian grid or indeed to the Chinese grid. But also they can be used to create green hydrogen. And if you, one looked at the economics of, of creating green hydrogen and exporting it to, for instance, steel mills in Inner Mongolia, China, by pipeline, rather than trying to do that by boat from Australia, it's a massively competitively advantaged location to do so. So it's one that, that uh, we see as being a more longer term, but one that takes advantage of our, of our current skills and, 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 and positional location, but one that we think is really exciting and, and uh, looking forward to, to ramping up in due course. We'll have to leave it there. We're out of time. Neil, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Neil Young is the Managing Director of ASX-listed Elixir Energy, which trades under the ticker EXR. You can follow all the future developments of Elixir Energy at their website, elixirenergy.com.au, or by subscribing to energynewsbulletin.net. Energy News is Australasia's most comprehensive, in-depth publication for the oil and gas, petrochemical and renewables industries. Subscribing gives you an edge in the industry and financial markets too. This podcast was produced by Aspermont Media, news for business. (laughs) 